This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Jesse Gersten speaks with Dr. Gail Rigobert, Minister for Education, Innovation, Gender Relations, and Sustainable Development for the Island of St. Lucia. Well, Minister, welcome to the show. Um, we can jump right into uh, some of these questions that we have here for you. Uh, thank you for taking the time today. So St. Lucia is you know, one of only a handful of countries, interestingly, that has a government ministry dedicated to sustainable development. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the role of your ministry in addressing sustainability and development, and what are some of the initiatives um, and programs that you've been promoting? Thank you so much for the opportunity. Whereas the nomenclature sustainable development is not new in the governance structure or ministerial portfolios in, in St. Lucia, one of the reasons that I asked the Prime Minister, in effect, to assume responsibility for sustainable development is that our conversation had started with a prime minister asking that I assume responsibility for education. And as the conversation evolved, I then asked whether we could give consideration to marrying gender relations with education for what I presume is perhaps the first time that this is happening in terms of the ministerial portfolios in St. Lucia, because in the 18 months preceding the last election, our news reports were littered with incidents of uh, uh, gender-based violence and other unsavory incidents that warranted some kind of policy intervention intervention and what I thought to be a cultural recalibration, uh, so to speak. And I thought it best to marry that with education so that we can begin to impact young people, how they think, how they perceive um, gender interaction, etc. And of course, we then discussed um, the emerging fields of interest and we agreed that perhaps innovation is a good caption for issues regarding our creative industries, um, intellectual property rights, empowering our artists, empowering our entrepreneurs, innovators, etc. And I said to PM, well, the more I think about it, if you were to think of development as if it were a mathematical equation, all of these variables would be on the left-hand side of the equal sign, and then would amount to or equal to sustainable development in effect. So whereas traditionally or historically, if you were to trace the genealogy of that phrase, sustainable development, it largely assumed an environmental tone to suggest that this generation should utilize the existing physical resources or some degree of responsibility to ensure that the future generation had access to those physical resources. But for, for us and for me in St. Lucia, it meant more than just that, to the extent that it was not simply about a futuristic state of being, but really about survival in the present tense. Uh, to the extent that we were having to contend with challenges that required an immediate response to guarantee our survival today. And, and for that reason, therefore, notwithstanding that very traditional and uh, common sense interpretation of sustainable development, 
precisely because of the urgency for survival. For me, it took on a new resonance. And I must say, luckily, that that sentiment is also what pervades the cabinet as well. I often refer to our cabinet as a green cabinet to suggest that there is a strong sense of awareness regarding climate change and what that means for our own existential um, being, existence, realities, etc. Quite apart from our participation in international fora and signing on to declarations and conventions and treaties, one of the things that I have emphasized and I pray will become the hallmark of my leadership is what I call a people-centered engagement. So it is all well and good to sign on. It is all well and good to sit in and participate in those international meetings. But I needed to be people-centered to the extent that citizens understand why we participate and how the country can benefit from that participation. And it is not um, simply a cerebral activity or an exercise of diplomacy. You know, what you're saying is actually, um, from a, I think, a policy and a government perspective somewhat revolutionary in that these um, these issues, if you will, of education and gender relations and innovation really can't be addressed without also addressing sustainable development as one. Absolutely. And I, I often remind stakeholders that these issues are indivisible, that one cannot speak about gender relations without understanding economic empowerment of men and of women in the current uh, climate and in our jurisdiction, for example. One cannot speak about economic or social advancement without thinking very carefully about uh, affording our citizens an education that is best in class, that is internationally com comparable, that can enhance the employability, not only in the national space, but also regionally and internationally. And curiously, increasingly, we are seeing that evidently it is important to marry these considerations with emerging opportunities in the blue economy, in the green economy, and precisely because I've got the innovation portfolio as well, in the orange economy in terms of creative industries, entrepreneurship, innovation, etc. And that is why we interpret our participation in the international community as, as one that is very significant because for us, it means resource mobilization for the realization of our own domestic socioeconomic agenda or ambition. It means, therefore, that as you connect the dots, that you ought to have a real sense of how can that translate into enhanced economic well-being on the ground with due attention being paid to what we perceive as responsible engagement with our physical resources. Minister, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, on this show, we hear from a number of business leaders who are working on sustainability from a business perspective. But as a government policymaker, how do you see your role and the role of your government promoting a sustainable development agenda? And how do you work with business to achieve that? Allow me to answer this in, in two ways, if I may. And Please. one it is thank you. And one it is to suggest that there may be a significant difference in the role of the private sector in a large developed economy versus the role of the private sector in a small island developing state. And why I wish to begin there is because 
in our jurisdiction as a small open economy, you would find that the government assumes a lead role in conjunction with its facilitative role with respect to creating an environment in which private sector can prosper. And so private sector, in a sense, um, at least on the face of it, depends largely on government to set the tone. Whereas the larger jurisdiction, I think there's a greater degree of autonomy of the private sector, but also the private sector can create its own momentum, if you understand what I mean. Absolutely. So for that reason, therefore, in a jurisdiction such as ours, the role of government is absolutely critical. To the extent that not only are you the legislative arm of, of the govern, governance structure, and so you set uh, the, the legal framework and the regulatory framework, but government also plays a very active role in terms of foreign economic relations, attracting foreign direct investment, um, ensuring that there are very lucrative and attractive suites of incentives, not only for foreign investors, but also for local entrepreneurs and it, so in a sense the private sector takes its lead from from government i must say however with respect to greening our economy i am increasingly encouraged by the level of buy-in i see coming from the private sector so for example um, in, a, in a very material sense in the last couple months our lead supermarket is the one that uh, initiated the change from disposable plastic bags or um, one-use plastic bags to reusable uh, shopping bags. Now, whereas from the government's perspective, this is very much in tandem with our own policy trajectory, it was good to have a partner in the in the person of a lead agency such as a supermarket chain proceeding to take real climate action in that regard. Well, and this brings us on to a, a great topic, maybe diving into a little bit further some of the policies mm -hmm. that your ministry and your leadership are promoting in St. Lucia. Mm -hmm. I know that um, tackling waste uh, and yes. promoting the circular economy are issues that are very uh, important to you. Um, mm -hmm. what, what are some of the policies that you've been um, enacting to help to help uh, further those issues? Certainly, our plans are very advanced in terms of phasing out the use of styrofoam and single-use plastic. We are in the final stages of developing the relevant legislation to support that. We have also uh, made significant progress in terms of controlling the use of mercury products by agreeing to sign the Minamata Convention on Mercury. And uh, last year, I must say, I was quite happy to attend uh, the first COP of the Minamata Convention in Geneva, uh, I think. And uh, uh, for us, that is significant. And what was quite stunning about this was the correlation between, and that's why I emphasize a, a people-centric intervention, people-centric participation, the conversation around mercury and health and well-being. And so, like I say to my, my team, when you return to capital, you can say, well, this has very real implications for your well-being, for your health, for your lifespan, <laughs> for the well-being of your children. And, and so the Minamata Convention on, on Mercury is one of those, those examples where we translate what may very well and be treated as something esoteric and philosophical and abstract into, uh, an, into everyday meaning and relevance uh, for, for our people.
we have made significant progress as well in the area of training of air conditioning and refrigeration technicians in terms of good refrigeration and air conditioning management practices. And all of this, of course, an effort to reduce our demand for HCFC. The development and implementation of a sustainable management mechanism for POPs is something too that is high up on our agenda. One of the things that, that I, I relish and I, I confess means a lot to me, and I use the phrase very often, is this notion of deliverables. Because one can participate in international fora and engage fully and meaningfully, but if you do not come back to capital to effect the necessary changes, it would appear that, like I said, it's just an exercise in theatrical diplomacy, so to speak. And, and that is why, for example, as you hinted, in the area of waste management, it is so important to us that we trigger a, a revolution of sorts, a paradigmatic shift in our own perception of waste, that we begin to see waste as a new resource, that we, we begin to consider the real opportunities to, to be had in the circular economy. And I know that previously, and with the old technologies, if I may call them that, that there is some concern that we did not have the economies of, of scale to participate fully in the circular economy and all that to note. Thankfully, I think that due to technological advancements, enhanced technological advancements, that, that we should not be disadvantaged or no longer be disadvantaged precisely because we do not generate enough garbage per capita, for example. Right. And this is, I would say, particularly of importance in a in a small island economy like St. Lucia uh, and waste and the circular economy um, just become hugely more uh, more relevant in, in a smaller economy such as that. Absolutely. And especially with respect to emerging employment opportunities. So the issue of knowledge transfer as it pertains to investments in geothermal technology and solar voltaic technology, for example. Also, we would have attracted those fantastic investments and we have technology at work. What about sustainability, maintenance, and how much, how, to what extent can we factor in the necessity for real knowledge transfer so that over time and in good time we can stand on our own so to speak and minimize our reliance on that continuing engagement with for argument's sake the original investor so to speak and uh, that that is why again let me connect that back to education even in terms of the curriculum revolution <laughs> that we're orchestrating at this time, it is with a view to ensure the relevance of the curriculum in a small island economy with consideration for um, climate change and what that means not only in terms of challenges but economic opportunity. So are we teaching, teaching the right technical courses? Can we do more to attract students to consider engineering and, and mathematics and the sciences as lucrative career options? And can we make science come alive and seem le less abstract and geeky? Can we uh, marry professional academic pursuits with real problems on the ground so that the academic pursuit 
is not an exercise in abstraction, but has a problem-solving um, persona or problem-solving um, outcome or ambition. So in recent times, for example, you know that we have had a problem with sargassum seaweed, which washes onto our shores. And you know the stench is repugnant, it's unbearable, it's a nuisance to fish a folk. And this young man took that nuisance seaweed and in his parents' garage was able to convert it into liquid fertilizer. And has, in the last couple years, been invited to do a TED talk, has won a Smithsonian Prize for innovation, etc. He was the feature um, speaker at the recently held graduation of the South Louis Community College. Again, a real life example of the application of science, the relevance of science. And of course, to, to make it attractive and to emphasize that it is perhaps equally, if not more lucrative than doing accounting or law, if I may say so. <laughs> um, and so you, I mean, you're touching on here a little bit about, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation, which, which mm -hmm. clearly drives uh, the economy and, and will continue to do so in a more sustainable way going forward. And, you know, so one of the questions I have, because we do have a lot of uh, uh, people in the business community who listen to this show, what mm -hmm. sort of sustainable investments would you hope to see more of in St. Lucia going forward? As we endeavor to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and uh, uh, move into areas such as solar, wind, and geothermal, I think there's a real opportunity in St. Lucia. In fact, at last year's COP, at the IRENA side event, one of the things that Prime Minister and I highlighted is the fact that small need not be perceived, and I mean small to mean small island, need not be perceived as a disadvantage. It, not, it need not be perceived as volatile, vulnerable, disadvantageous. That small can mean malleable, that it's, it's open for experimentation with quick results, fewer administrative hoops and loops, hopefully. And, and, and that yeah. these, <laughs> these characteristics, in effect, should attract or lure investors into our space, allowing investors to use us as a success story in quick time that can be showcased to wider jurisdictions. So certainly in the area of energy, um, similarly, um, with, and, and, and I, I must say that for us, this is, this is a high priority to the extent that we, we know theoretically what the savings can be had in terms of what we have to um, spend in terms of foreign reserves on fossil fuels and its, its um, petroleum derivatives. I would like to borrow from my sister islands in, in the Indian um, Ocean in the Pacific um, that maybe we need to reposition ourselves, not necessarily as small island states, but as large ocean states. And uh, to begin to focus on the significant resource that is the ocean on, and all that it contains. And I, as an island economy largely dependent on tourism, I, I know that it is a real challenge and I must applaud the Sanusha Hotel and Tourism Association and the tourism sector in general for the extent to which they've embraced the notion of sustainable tourism. Because it is precisely because of our physical environment, unique flora and fauna that people are drawn, tourists are drawn to St. Lucia. If that is our lure, then it has to be that we have a vested interest in protecting that as well while we maximize or leverage its 
for economic development. So there is real opportunity there as well in terms of health and well, health tourism, um, wellness tourism, well-being tourism, um, whichever way you, you phrase it, that St. Lucia is well positioned for exploring that niche in tourism by leveraging its, its unique flora and, and fauna. And I really want to applaud the tourism sector for the embrace of, of sustainable um, tourism. I also want to suggest, if, if I may, that one of the, the things that I think the last technological revolution did for small jurisdictions such as ours is that we moved from wealth being denoted in terms of physical resources like diamond and gold and oil to wealth being denoted in, in, in gray matter innovation, problem solving, creativity, etc. And and so if it is that we can truly craft a curriculum that is not only responsive to the current demands of the global economy, but can be futuristic or avant-garde in some respects by leveraging information communications technology St. Lucia can begin to realize some benefit as we are beginning to see in the area of artificial intelligence and the setting up of call centers and other related businesses. I would hasten to say that whereas I embrace the opportunity provided by call centers, that I do not want for us to imagine that we have people who are simply answering a telephone and redirecting concern, but that there is real engagement, problem solving um, happening in that interaction, which means that within the business of call centers, that there is value added within that subsector of ICT-related activity. So there is some real opportunity for that here as well. But as you can, can realize, that then requires some very urgent tweaking to our exist, existing curricula, which I must say, and I'm not saying this because I'm also the Minister for Education, I must say that we can begin to celebrate given our ability to, to launch, and we have launched subjects in the areas of, of ICT, IT integration in education, so as to enhance the digital competency, not only of our students, but our teachers as well. Now, the, one may argue that we may be coming on the flat end of the curve, so to speak, but notwithstanding, at least we're in the game. And we're not, in a sense, being caught on the hard shoulder while the digital world, the technological world passes us by. So that's another area which um, I think, in terms of research and innovation, if tied to some of the real human, social, economic, environmental concerns that we have, can yield some significant benefit, as we have seen with the young man from the community of Lavery who invented the solarized desalination plant, and the young man who I referenced a while ago who was able to convert the sargassum seaweed into a liquid fertilizer, or the young people, um, Jukali, who have been collecting um, plastic and glass bottles and are looking to take it to the next stage. So I'm saying all of this to suggest that um, 
there is opportunity for partnership. And in, in fact, I am en route to a meeting with Prime Minister to discuss solid waste management and the circular economy and what are the investment opportunities for waste management, um, waste to energy, and how we can, in a sense, reduce our reliance on landfills in the traditional sense and consider greener options within the wider conversation on waste management. In that regard, therefore, we and, and we have been working very closely with the Caribbean Development Bank, uh, the OECS, which is the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, uh, the World Bank, all with a view to setting the tone for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. We must take a very long view of this. There is also, in terms of your question regarding investment opportunities, there is also tremendous opportunity in the area of sustainable agriculture. And for us, this is so important, not only in terms of food security, which inevitably is a major concern for any government or any people, but with respect to enhancing employability, creating economic opportunity um, for especially young people as agriculture itself goes through a paradigmatic shift in terms of building resilience and adaptation to climate change and climate variability within the context of agriculture on a, on a small on a small island such as ours. So whether it be food production, whether it be considerations about species and um, biodiversity, uh, marine resources, but also with issues such as irrigation, what, what does it mean in terms of the, the climate variability, your dry season, a significant drought, your wet season with floods, how can you build resilience in the agricultural sector by introducing um, new technology? This, this is, um, you know, this is fascinating because, uh, you know, if I'm hearing you, you're really talking about the country of St. Lucia as being, I would, I would call almost a sustainability incubator in a sense, and exactly. that you have, you, you have an abundance of all of these resources, whether it's ocean resources, you're talking about agriculture, you're talking about a very um, open and creative and innovative tourism and technology sectors, and you really can use those as a you know comparative advantage for St. Lucia uh -huh, to look at uh -huh. sustainable development and look at growing your economy in that direction. Absolutely, if I may say so, the variable that undergirds a lot of this is really our transition to renewable energy, if I may, and and that is why we were so appreciative and celebrated the recent um, Lucelec initiative where it was able to es establish a new solar farm, which we launched recently, thanks to the partnership with um, the Carbon War Room, the Rocky Mountain, the Clinton Climate Initiative. I mean, that is the kind of partnership that, leading on from our previous question, that's the kind of partnership that can move us from ambition to policy to action and very material outcomes at the end of the process. Wonderful. And Minister, you know, I want to switch the questions just a little bit before we, we wrap. Um, sure. I really want to talk to you about, I really want to talk to you about um, what motivates you as a leader? You're taking so much on within your ministry <laughs> and taking on so many different issues. You know, how did you, what led you to this role that you're in now? Um, and, and what personal connections drive you uh, to be a leader for your country? Wow. <laughs> that's, that's loaded. So my earliest recollection of my interest being peaked, so to speak, 
was from the vantage point of my father's shoulders, very literally. So he has taken me as a child to a political meeting. I will not divulge which party it was at this stage. <laughs> but I must say, I looked on with great curiosity and, and I was really tuned in to the politician who was delivering on that particular evening. But also, I come from a household where my father was very politically astute, very aware, um, and there was a lot of activity, political activity and conversation around me as, as I grew up, so to speak. And I don't know that I had much of a choice because it seemed as if coming from a household where my mother was a teacher, gave 35 years of service. Um, my father was an agriculturist and a practicing farmer as well. I like to say that to prove that he was not just telling people what to do and creating policy, but he was practicing as well that there was a great call to serve community in the first instance. Secondly, as, as I grew older, and by the age of 11, I think I had come to appreciate geographic distinctions and what that meant. Because I was coming from the southern tip of the country, from a rural community, and I was going to high school in the capital. And this is not unique to St. Lucia by any definition, but certainly you can imagine what the cultural or the subcultural differences are among the various districts and between rural and urban areas. And I, I started to see things that, to my mind, could shape a child positively or impact a child positively, but could also be very damaging if one did not have a strong sense of identity, awareness, and a sense of direction as well. And I, I don't know, but I, I've always had a sensitivity of those who appeared to be less fortunate. And, and those who perhaps needed that push, because I saw even my wider extended family doing that for other people. And the, 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 the satisfaction that I imagined as a child that that brought in terms of just ensuring that the tide rises and that people benefit versus feeding into a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. But as I matured through my academic career and got to high school and college, I remember by the time I got to South Carolina College, I was already involved in the youth arm, the political, in a political youth arm, incidentally of my party. So I've been around my party for a while. And that was between 89 and 91 as, as a youngster and participating in, in debates and really being curious about social issues and how these can really dictate whether one makes it or doesn't. By the time I got to university, it was very clear to me why I was there. I mean, no pun intended, I literally did a degree in government. <laughs> so my first degree is BSc government. As literal as that sounds, it, it tells how certain I was about what I needed to do uh, as an adult, what I needed to do as a profession. And I recall by the second year of my first degree, I also came to realize that as a small country, it was important to understand who we were as a people, what our history was, and where we, 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 we fitted, where we were in the world, as it were. And 
during that process, therefore, I developed an interest in international relations. And so from the second year of my first degree, I started to take on more international relations courses, international political economy courses, etc. In my mind, wisely or not, all intended to prepare me for community service, to prepare me for a political career. But throughout my life, from as early as I can remember, which is pre-high um, school, it seemed as if wherever I spoke with whoever I engaged with, with adults in community meetings and debates, that people would suggest that maybe one day I should become a politician, even before I had a very keen or intimate understanding of what that really meant. And I'm telling you, one can never really know what that means until one becomes a politician. It is one of the things that I have discovered in this business, and I say it all the time, within the first six months of becoming a politician in, in, in 2010, I was convinced that I needed to write a book called The Missing Chapter, in the same vein as their religions that suggest that you know, maybe whatever version of the Bible the Catholics use or some of the other religions that it's missing a book. And and I came to that title because I thought of all the political science books I had read and for all of the courses I had done, I, there were some very significant omissions, <laughs> so to speak. And that is how I arrived at the title for that book that I intend to write one day called The Missing Chapter. But the farther I I, away from St. Lucia that I went, so I moved to Trinidad and I went to the UK to study, the farther away from home that, that I the farther from home that I went, I came to realize that this notion of colonialism and being cared for by a mother country had waned, we had, it had been exhausted, and that our independence had to mean true independence because of that declining interest by larger states to assume responsibility for former friends within a Cold War context, for example, or former colonies to speak to our relationship with our former um, mother country. And, and to assume responsibility for your well-being means that you ought to be able to hold your own in the international space where the conversation is happening, where the resources can be mobilized or can be had. And for me, therefore, a Gail Rigobert coming out of rural St. Lucia and making her way to Cambridge University and onto the international stage need not be an aberration, that I wanted that to be the norm, to become normal in my village, that little girls would be afforded the opportunity that I had and to not see it as something extraordinary and so far out of their reach that they too were attending the same infant school that I attended and the same primary school that I attended and had the same opportunity for secondary school education. And I can say to you, one of the things that I've come to realize and, and I will admit, yes, I will admit that I, I did come from a family that by, you know, age six, it was evident my father was away studying, my uncles were away studying, and yes, there is that. But notwithstanding, I, I recognize that we need to teach ambition that beyond one's material circumstances, beyond one's family circumstances, that if you can infuse imagination, you can activate imagination and ambition that those little girls in the village can also 
realize their dream and and be, become well positioned to give back not only to community but to country and and I can say to you, I must confess that even though I thought I was plugged in and tuned in and understood that you know people had challenges and some were better off than others and you know, some families were perhaps predisposed to excelling more than others. I, I can say to you that what drives me is the need to debunk the notion that you are born into a circumstance of opportunity, more or less so than anybody else. But I think we're, we need to have an education system that facilitates everyone regardless of the economic circumstance that regardless of your economic circumstance you can have ambition feed that ambition succeed and realize your, your dreams that you need not be disadvantaged because you're from a small island or because you're rural or because you're from a single parent household or any other ascription that we sometimes use to explain away why some are more successful than others. So as a policymaker, it is for me to level that playing field. But in leveling the playing field, the more important thing is to trigger the imagination in, in people who perhaps are not born into an environment where it is obvious to them what the next step is. Well, Minister Rigobert, I think St. Lucians are incredibly lucky to have you as their minister. <laughs> I'm sorry for that long explanation, but it is what it is. And, but I'm, and, and I must say, I am so fortunate to be afforded this opportunity to give back. The The real beauty of having capacity uh, the the real game to be had in terms of having talent is in sharing it and in realizing the multiplier effect of having shared of one's talent having shared of one's time and and that for me is is the success story that will be told one day that this is one to many one person affecting so many people who themselves can impact so many others positively and and that is the social and economic um, paradigmatic shift that we need that's the social and economic revolution that we need but i emphasize it starts with imagination. It starts with a sense of ambition, a sense of knowing I am here right now, but I have the, the ability to move from here to up there to over there. Not for my own sake, not for one's own sake or self-aggrandissement, but for the sake of giving back which ultimately is where you will realize that multiply effect, that enhanced overall well-being over time, one day at a time, one term at a time, one administration at a time, I suppose. <laughs> well, that's an incredibly powerful message, one day at a time. But I think, I think as you said more eloquently than I, you know, it's really about giving that sense of creativity and and, and hope and perspective that you can really go anywhere that you want and really, you know, make the difference that we're all trying to make through uh, whatever issue it is that you're, you're tackling. And in your case, many issues at once. <laughs> um, certainly. Well, and, oh, sorry. Well, I mean, no, I was just going to, I was going to say, um, are there any final thoughts that you have anything that we didn't cover um, that you want to share uh, that we haven't already talked about? Uh, certainly, although I did not mention it explicitly previously, uh, but but clearly, the sustainable development goals 
inform a lot of our policy direction as well. And I always emphasize the indivisibility of climate action and, and the SDGs. And what for me is the driving force, is the inspiration, is to ensure that we can put people first. But for you to put people first, you must, of course, protect planet. And uh, in putting people first, we've got to leverage partnerships, which is SDG number 17, of course. And one that is very, very close to my, my heart, as you can tell, in terms of advancement, progress, and prosperity, is that we ensure we leave no one behind. And I believe that leaving no one behind is critical to ensuring the peace that we so urgently want because we know there's no denying that there is a correlation between socioeconomic circumstance and unsavory activity and non-peaceful outcomes, uh, so to speak. And so whether on the micro, on the macro level, if we can marry all of those variables, people, planet, prosperity, partnerships, peace, I think that we would have created an environment indeed where the tide does rise and in effect we can guarantee that no one will be left behind. And I just therefore wanted to accentuate where the SDGs fell within. For me it is, it is uh, such a uh, an obvious intuitive component of what we do. I neglected to mention it explicitly, but to say that indeed the SDGs underscore um, what we do and that for us, precisely because of our circumstance, that climate action and pursuit of the, the sustainable development goals we see as in effect one and the same ambition. Absolutely. And so, you know, Minister, I just want to thank you for sharing your story and all of your insight today on the impact report. Uh, thank you so very kindly. Learn more about Minister Rigobert and St. Lucia by visiting govt.lc. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report when we'll be talking with Matthew Weatherly White, co-founder of Caprock. The Bard MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu/mba.